Welcome to All Power to the Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute, where social justice, human development, and community building come together. This is where you will meet activists, artists, teachers, scholars, helpers, and healers who are bringing creativity, hope, and possibility to individuals and communities all over the world. out there this is all power to the developing i'm your host des desiree wanden des for short and i'm here with a very special guest today today i'm here with a award-winning multimedia content creator and a passionate storyteller this is someone who i've personally seen in the field and has been a very inspirational person that i've seen in action for many years and i'm very excited to conduct this interview today i'm here with intikana what's going on man Peace, peace, peace. What's good, man? Good to speak with you today. Yes, yes. How's everything on your end, man? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm alive. I'm here. About to have a great conversation. It just started raining. Yep. So. Over here in the end too, man. We're getting that <laughs> rain, too. So, man, I really want to explore your journey. Like I said, I've just seen you in the field for so many years, um, from musical performances to activism to uh, film. And I'm always just so inspired by so many things that you've done and, and how you choose to use the culture of hip hop. So I want to explore uh, all of that with you. Where does it start for you? Where does the culture of being a part of what we call hip hop start for you coming out of the Bronx, New York? Specifically with hip hop, that's hard to pinpoint only because my impact was as early as I can remember, because I was always around it. Even my mom was always playing hip hop music from when I was a kid and my household outside going to school is everywhere. So there was also a pride that came with that too. It was like, this is the Bronx, like, you know, this is where I come from. So growing up with that pride and that feeling always made a space for me <clears throat> to really be moved by it, you know? My life was deeply impacted by it. I would say by the age of 12, though, is when I started writing as an MC or lyricist or the beginning of that process. And that's when the bar started coming. I was doing different types of writing. I was drawing as a young kid. Like, I have a lot of, like, paintings I did or pictures that I drew, be it comics or different stuff like that. I did a number of things before that. And my first performance was when I was seven, but it was like uh, for something for school. And I did a presentation in a nursing home in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. So that was my first public performance and it was actually published in the Daily News. So it was like my first time doing anything. And, you know, my picture was there as a seven year old and it was interesting, but <clears throat> I didn't find my actual voice voice as a writer until my teens, you know, because when I was writing at 12, I found or I kind of explored, fell upon, discovered my own process into writing, which was, you know, my grandfather passing. I, I was in the hospital and 
I just grabbed a notebook and started writing and I didn't have instrumentals. So I listened to a song and I just tried to avoid the words and focus on the beat, which in that moment, for whatever reason, all I could hear was the beat. Like that's how I really tuned in to the song. And uh, the, the lyrics were dope, but I found myself having this cathartic process where what I was going through, the pain was kind of like, relieving itself through the writing and after that it became kind of really interesting to me because then i was more so brought into i guess the cipher so when those moments or invitations started to happen before at first i didn't want to do it i was like ah, nah, i'm not you know it's not what i'm doing right now you know i'm not ready for all that that's too much pressure uh, but then by the time I was 14, I was writing so much and my close friends were hearing me. They're like, nah, you gotta, you gotta do some stop, stop. You get, so I did like my first battle when I was like 14. And then from there battling through a high school and doing a lot of like rap battling those years and going to other schools, you know, different floors in my building. Cause I was at Clinton, D with Clinton so it was always packed. There was always a lot of stuff going on. People hearing them rhyming. So they knock on the window of my class during class. Like, yo, when you get out? <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So or I'd be walking in the hallway, you know, holding some girl's hand. And somebody's like, yo, we got a battle right now. It's like, oh, wow. So always needing to be on guard. Always having to like be able to protect myself physically, but also the raps help avoid that because growing up i had to fight a lot i, yeah, I was you i know, just fighting. wanted to, to speak about that you're, you're speaking about yourself in the bronx growing up um discovering this culture or not discovering it because it's all around you but so immersing yourself in this culture of the music the rap um the dance and all that i'm sure is a part of it in the peripheral but then you're also living in the bronx new york um the bronx new york is known as the home of hip-hop the Yankees are there. There's so many other cultural things that happen there, but it's also one of the most impoverished places. How was that impacting you as well, coming up in that journey, also being immersed in the culture? Yeah, so growing up, I, I grew up with my mom. I was raised by my mom and my grandparents. So, you know, I lived in the basement of my grandmother's house, you know, block from East Chester Projects. And, you know, my father, you know, after he had came out of prison, I was like 13, he was in the South Bronx. So I would stay with him and then I would stay with my mom. And then I would just go back and forth a lot, as much as I could, like every week or as much as there was time for me to be there. And during those years, there was a lot that I saw. Like I remember being in Millbrook Projects, uh, which is also, like, from my understanding, Karis one live there as well but i remember seeing you know somebody get killed there you know that was crazy as a kid you know uh guy got blown away in the middle of the night and hearing some woman uh which i was imagining was his mother just crying out and you hear her voice echoing all over the projects and it was just like man and i was just a kid you know seeing that and watching the whole process of like them come get the body and you know all of that so there were a lot of things that I saw was around that for me, I didn't realize was irregular. I mean, people do experience this, uh, but when I've traveled to other places, as I grew older, 
and I would share certain experiences, people be like, look at me crazy. Like, that's not normal. And then I started to see how abnormal a lot of these things are or how they shouldn't be normal or normalized. But they were. And I think those things, I, I didn't have a political understanding. Like, I wasn't politically educated. <clears throat> I just knew things were messed up. And I knew things were wrong. And I knew this was wrong, that was wrong, this is messed up. But over time, those things led me to want to study, to want to learn more about history and learn more about myself and where I come from or, you know, people I love, my community. And those things are what really taught me, you know, the activism, going to meet with different people and learn from them and stuff like that. Those things definitely gave me context and understanding the knowledge I needed to move the way I needed to and be more wise in my decision-making. Before that, it wasn't, I didn't have names or, or labels to describe what was happening, you know. I just knew these things were not, you know, were not the way they once were or I wouldn't want to romanticize the past because even hundreds of years ago or the lives our ancestors were living, it wasn't perfect, you know. But it definitely made my curiosity grow as to how did we get here? Why are we here? Why is my things like this? So my work is further informed by that process as well. So early on, someone might hear my work. It's very much of a young kid from the Bronx growing up, expressing himself with no censor, no, you know, I'm trying to be politically correct. I'm just going in on whatever I felt, thought trying to make the bar hit or I used to love the sound of the, the people in the cypher when they were like Woo! like that to me would just yep, yep. like fill my soul so I would write with the intention of creating those kind of moments you know to where everyone at the same moment at the same time feel this thought they have some image that a line brought to their mind and they all see it at the same time that to me was so like profound I love that as a as a writer, you're saying that you're coming up and you're battle rapping a lot. And usually when it comes to battle rapping or, you know, that type of battle it gets very raw. And it more times is about dismantling your opponent using, you know, basic negativity, putting them down. Was there a conflict for you in, in that world and with also wanting to be more informed, wanting to... Uh, have positive messaging in your music and your bars as long as well as expressing this aggression that you also come from? I think at the time I just wasn't aware of certain things. I remember traveling and going on tours and doing like regional national competitions for like even poetry. And a lot of those moments kind of changed me because then I'm seeing people from all over the country, you know, telling their stories and sharing things that I never heard, never knew about. And it's like, wow, okay. You know, even things that they would be like, oh, I don't agree with this. Or how could you say this or whatever? I was just completely raw, like so raw. So at the time I didn't have a conflict the same way if I'm working with a student now and they're super raw, I'm not gonna sit there and judge them and be like, what are you doing? You know. I'll try to curve their creativity 
in a way that they can see that they don't have to glorify certain things, you know, but that they can actually see the context in which they're living. You know, I even had a class earlier today where a lot of these students are rhyming about shootings and all this like really intense stuff. And some of them are kind of regurgitating what they've heard, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to get them to see like, even if you tell that story, you got to make it more interesting than just like, you know, bang, bang, you know, it's like, okay, why, why did this happen? Why did that person get hurt? Why did that beef get started? Why is, so those things are important, but back then, you know, I'll listen to certain stuff. I'm like, oh my God, because that was the intention to fully go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, war. Yeah. And I think what make those spa- uh, spaces sacred, even as wild as they are, is the fact that you can say anything. And the whole thing is to not be judged. There are few spaces in the world yeah. where you can go and say anything. And people, like, if they don't like it, they're not going to like it. But it's a space to say anything. You just more than often more often than not got to deal with whatever consequences yeah, yeah. which that was also a thing too sometimes i would i remember i was in castle hill projects while pun was still alive i remember seeing his uh cherry red truck outside the projects and it was untouched and i remember like oh my goodness the real it says big pun i'm big in big letters on the side i was like oh wow and i did a battle in there in the projects and they were like Gang members, a bunch of people in the room. It was tight. And I was battling. I was going hard. I was going really hard to the point that, you know, it took like grown men to like keep it from getting physical because, you know, you try not to lose. So you put everything on the line, but people are like, yo, who you think you're talking to? You know, so a lot of that kind of stuff happening. Be like, yo, if you can't deal with it, then don't rap. It was like, luckily, there were grown men who were like OGs keeping it all together but Mm -hmm. those kind of things could get crazy Mm -hmm. so i think those experiences taught me a certain kind of endurance a certain level of like you know to have thick skin too so even when people do say things to me i don't take it as personal you know Mm -hmm. it's helped me grow like that that's an important part even though like I'm not in that space right now. I'm trying to do other things. I'm writing a book. I'm working yeah. on different stuff, but it's a journey. You know, we all have a journey and that's a part of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. I think, I think, you know, one thing that was always that you speak about that one thing that was always stuck out to me in hip hop is how we could be so aggressive to the point, even from a, if someone was watching, they would think, man, these two people are about to fight. But we could give each other that level of energy and literally go outside afterwards and talk to each other like it's <laughs> a normal Monday, you know, because like you said, we've created the space for us to be able to express ourselves in that way. Yeah, I know as myself as a dancer, that could get extremely intense, too. And, <laughs> and there's been moments where it's gotten so close to the fisticuffs, but it's almost like, wait a minute, we do this so we don't have to do that. And we go outside and we and we just talk like normal human beings because the part of it releasing the frustration, the energy, the whatever's going on in life is in the dance. And I can imagine it's like it's for you, it's like that in the rhymes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, growing up, I was I had a lot of fights, but it was always self-defense. It wasn't until I was rapping more that it seemed like I didn't even have to fight because I was now using my voice. Mm 
So even when someone tried to do something to initiate a fight or something, I was able to use my words in a way where, you know, they would second guess it or be like, you know, and it, it was powerful. Or like, you know, all right, you're going to hit him because he said, like, you know, especially in school, like, you know, people going back and forth for saying silly stuff. But yeah, especially in the dance too, you know, it, it's powerful. And that that's super ancestral. And, and there are these powers that we have in our soul, our aura, that we don't even realize we're accessing, but are there that are super ancient coming from all different kinds of cultures that we bring in, you know, specifically from the motherland and from, you know, uh, Afro-Caribbean. I know, and that's another thing too, different people have different inspirations or where they feel, you know, hip hop comes from and, you know, what the sources are and the origins. So, you know, for me, I'm just keep learning, keep studying. And I think evolution is what's good too, you know, because that's how I learned. It, It kept, things from being a physical altercation, the dance and the raps, the hip hop in general. So me with my father in prison, with the stuff that I was seeing, all kinds of stuff, I was like, this is positive. Like this is something that I could still vocalize things. I could speak my mind. I can heal through things that I'm working through. And there's this slate of like a like a canvas for me to create art and throw colors on. And do this painting and then do something completely different. And whatever that painting was at that point, that's what it stood for that moment. But I still have the freedom as an artist to create on a whole different medium or do something that expands my vision or imagination. So those beginnings like are the foundation of my journey, but I've kept that open-ended way, uh, open-ended interpretation of myself as an artist, like to, to define myself, you know, I want to say I'm just a rapper, yeah. you know, just this, you yeah. know, I, I like having the creativity or the freedom to continue to grow without feeling restricted. You know, I'm a writer. I wrote a play, I writing this book, I'm, uh, I make films, you know, I teach. These are all different things that I'm very passionate about and I enjoy. I think also as we grow, there is really no need to limit ourselves, especially, you know, depending on what we want, you know? Yeah. You're con- yeah. Thank you for that. That that's actually a positive message that we all have to keep on remembering because I think sometimes we can get very complacent in even our creativity because it's creativity. So you think you're being creative, creative, but you can get complacent in that. So exploring yourself and taking the chances and the liberties to find out other ways to explore yourself is always a, a journey as an artist, whatever medium you're using. So mm-hmm. that, that definitely was very inspirational. So you're on your journey, you're, you're, you're battle rapping, you're building your repertoire, you're going to uh, battles, poetry slams, different musical events, you're opening up for a, a slew of major artists. Then you you do work with group homes, um, you've been to Rikers Island, you've done work in shelters. Was it a, did you make a conscious decision to pivot? Is this one of your other mediums and ways of expressing yourself? Um, because I think it's very remarkable when artists make a, make a decision. You could go this way, you could try to achieve this mainstream success you could try to do all this which is what everyone's perceived goal is or you could take your art and and 
try to do something else with it. Not to say you can't do both, but you could take your art and try to do something with it. Was it a conscious decision for you or how did it evolve for you? That's an interesting question. I think there are probably two ways for me to look at that or think about it. I remember in my teenage years, I had a manager, I had uh, different people that I was looking to work with and had meetings on like working with labels or different stuff. And a lot of times, I think those meetings for me, they were about what they wanted me to be. And at the time, in those moments, I was like, that's not me or I don't want that to be me, you know? Uh, so I started to basically kind of, I would say, move away from certain things or be in certain spaces. And then I got naturally invited into certain spaces, be it the classroom, you know? I remember when I was doing poetry and stuff like that, I got invited to a middle school to talk to some kids. I was like, all right, this, this will be interesting. We'll see, you know. And it was really cool. And the students really responded to me. And I was like, okay, cool. And then after that, eventually I got invited to a youth jail upstate New York. And I was speaking to these young kids who, you know, were locked up, teenagers in cells, you know. And I remember I went one time, there was a group of us poets, we were performing, and I did a few poems on like Puerto Rico and stuff like that, Body King. And when I did that, the students, I could see, I mean, the students, the, the inmates uh, <laughs> uh, were there and they were looking at me different. Like they were really like honed in, you know? And then by the end of it, I could tell like they appreciated the poems, but they were really honed in on like, yo, he was saying so much shit right there. And they got together and wrote a handwritten letter. Like the the, the young people got together and wrote this letter. And it's in their handwriting and they sent it to me. And I just remember being like, damn. And basically they were inviting me to come back and perform my play. I, they, they, I had mentioned that I was writing a play. So I couldn't not do it. I had to go. And I remember I got sick. I was mad sick that day. And I had they wanted me to perform my play twice. So it's an hour performance, two times. Wow. And, you know, I just remember being so sick, but I was like, I'm not canceling on that. I was like, I got to do this. So I did it anyway. And they were so moved and I felt their impact. Like it was really immediate. And they were bringing me, inviting me one on one by one to their cells. So I would sit in them with their, in their cell. And like one of them, he was Dominican and he was showing me like, yo, when you came last time, you inspired me to write. And I kind of took your flow and your style a bit, but yo, check this out. And he started showing me his rhymes, his drawings. And I was so moved. I was so inspired by it. And it let me know, I was like, this is where I want my impact to be. I want, I want that real meaningful, deep impact where people's lives hopefully could be changed for the better, you know, and at the same time mine as well. So I really tapped into that. And then I got invited to Rikers. And I first, I think the first time I went, I spoke with the women. And 
uh, we did poetry. That's where I met uh, the uh, a number of poets out there who like were also performing. I met Chilo, uh, you know, Grito de Poetas. It was it was a really powerful experience, and the women they like were messing with me. Like they were like you know saying certain stuff or whatever, and it was really funny. And they were just really. I don't want to say sweet because they weren't sweet, but they were like, it was sweet. Like the things that they were saying, it was funny, but they were hard because you could see like life been very serious. But we were kicking it, yeah. you know, and it was powerful. So then they invited me back to the men's uh, side of the island. And then I was in a big gymnasium and there were like several hundred of them. And that was so powerful i saw somebody i knew in there that i met in a cypher one time with my cousin and he was locked up and you know it was just like a surreal moment and he was like yo i remember you you were spitting yo that's crazy you here you doing this yo that's that's powerful man da, da, da. and then you know other people in the audience actually came up and rhymed with me you know and you know i, I learned a lot of stuff in those moments and you know, that could have been me. That could have been, I mean, a lot of the men in my family were like arrested and went to prison and stuff like that. So, you know, it was just a very personal, uh, personal attachment to those kinds of moments. And then getting into the uh, working with foster youth. And these are all spaces that I got invited to. And then like there was one place upstate, JCCA, which is uh, it's like a group home campus from like youth from New York City, but that go upstate. And when I started going there, they didn't have like a lot of men leading these kinds of things. Uh, and then when I was there and I, I even had some like all women, all girl groups, you know, uh, and to be an older male figure with younger ladies who really appreciated the space and saw value in it and, you know, it was, it was, I learned, they learned, we build, and then I ended up doing that for like seven, eight years being at that space. Like they just kept bringing me back every year to where like one of them, you know, she has, uh, I watched her, you know, grow and have like several kids and, you know, um, like just long-term connection with people yeah. to where, you know, they were at a certain age and now I'm watching them grow up and it's just like, that was important to me. I, I wouldn't say it was like a conscious decision as to like, yo, this is what I want to do. I just kind of knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to, like people try to get me to do reggaeton, which shout out to reggaeton. But it was like when it first came out and they were trying to get it to be real trendy and stuff. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. you do that? And I was like, I don't do that. That's not what I do. I'll spit a rap. And I remember there was like some label talking with me and that's what they wanted me to do. And I was like, you don't see me. Like You don't see me. And, and that sucks. All right. That's okay. You know, so sometimes I traveled the road not, uh, I guess, meant to be traveled or that sometimes was a lot more challenging or had more hurdles. But there were certain things that for me on a soul level or a legacy level was uh, more, more impactful or more definitely more meaningful for me. Yeah, yeah. It's a different it's a different feeling to see your art appreciated in a different way the the 
I think as an artist, you know, we're used to like the the hey, hey and the, the the general applause and the you did your thing, but when you see someone have a smile that you're there with them, you know, they're waiting for you to you come once a month or twice a month or once a week, or you see people that that say, man, last time like your boy that said, man, when you came last time, that made me want to get in the book, you know. Um, I've had experiences like that. I perform at a place and you go back to the school and you got two new B-boys now, you know, that just started doing their own thing. And um, it's it's remarkable that we're, we're everyday inf- inspirations to people and we, we, we don't know sometimes how we can impact people and then we see and we feel, wow, we can really impact people. And yeah. I definitely want to explore how that continued to impact your work. Um, coming back after the commercial break, we're going to be speaking more about Itikana's filming because this man is not only on the mic, he's behind the cameras too and on the editing. I don't know if it's Premiere or Final Cut Pro, maybe we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about all the other things that he's done right after these commercial breaks. Thank you for listening to All Power to Developing. Melissa Meyer, Associate Director of the Eastside Institute. Welcome to All Power to the Developing. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. In each episode, we introduce you to some amazing performance activists, play revolutionaries, and developmentalists from around the world who talk to us about their creative grassroots efforts to build a better world. If you like what you hear, please follow and share the series. You can find us on Amazon, Spotify, and Podbean. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. Like everything at the Institute, the growth of all power to the developing depends upon the people who create it and benefit from it. We hope you're one of them. Thanks for your support. And now back to our conversation. So before we left, you spoke about just the impact of, of of working in the juvenile facilities, the group homes, all the other different settings that you got an opportunity to be invited to and how that really impacted you. And now you're currently working in the classroom, if I'm not mistaken. Talk about talk about that. How did that come to you? You're, you're in Delaware, if I'm not mistaken. You're currently in Delaware teaching a kind of hip-hop curriculum. Yeah, so I go back and forth from New York to Delaware a lot. I started coming out to Delaware in 2016. Ironically, it was in a dream. I had and I called somebody based off a dream and followed a number of things intuitively, and it kind of led me out here. And I had found a space out here years ago, stayed out here. Went back to New York, moved over there. Then I moved down south and then moved back up here again. So I kind of go back and forth a lot. And the DMV is pretty open, which is cool. Like going to D.C., going to Baltimore, you know, these places, Philly. It's all kind of really close. So getting to know different communities out here. But in Wilmington, which is also called Garvey City, because Marcus Garvey built out here, as did uh, Harriet Tubman on the Underground Railroad and Bob Marley lived out here, his family, he starts family out here. And the roots 
out here in Wilmington are actually really deep. Delaware is the first state, and there's an organization that I work with called Culture Restoration Project, led by a brother named Richard Raw and his wife, Ali Shah. Two amazing people who I actually really admire a lot. And they have these, this program called Beyond Those Bars, where they go into different schools and different places in the city and basically bring hip hop programming where students write and, you know, record, make beats, put together a treatment for a music video, film the music video and finish a full project within a designated time frame. And I started initially building with them years ago. As of last year, I started doing it more regularly to where, you know, I've been doing it even more this year. So there's more programming going on. And these young people have been really transformative for me. Just, I have young, young ones, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. You know, I also have middle schoolers, teenagers, 12, 13. So on different days, I see different groups in different schools. And, you know, it's been really amazing because working with Richard Raw is one of the best working relationships I've had to where, you know, we really see eye to eye on so many things. And, you know, he he lives as an example. You know, he's not just talking about it. He is what, what and who he says he is, as is his family. And I love the way they cultivate their family. They have two children and just amazing. So going back to New York, you know, like I was just, I just did an event with the Sanitation Foundation in the Bronx, which the event was sponsored by the New York Yankees. So we were giving out Yankees tickets to anyone who helped volunteer clean up trash in the Bronx, which we cleaned up that day about 900 pounds of trash off the street, you know, and you think that's a lot, which it is. Yeah, like, awesome. Think about how dirty the Bronx is. It's yeah, crazy. It's a lot of trash. But, yeah, but it, it just felt good to be a part of something like that. So, you know, I I do this work here in Wilmington, and it's reaching people in a way where it, it is a smaller city. So even as I go around the city, I see people who've been in the class, like, Mr. you know, or someone that seen me as something I did. And I used to have that experience in New York, which, you know, is a great feeling Like you'd be on a train somewhere, you see somebody or you're on the road and you see somebody you've had a relationship with, you know, as like a friend or like an artist or just different people you've connected with and it feels good. So, um, expanding that into other cities you know my own kind of underground railroad if you will but very different more like artistic bridge you know creating bridges between cities even to cali you know i I went out to cali and you know for me it's like building this strand of family you know in all these different places to where there are people who've looked out for me like the reason why i've been able to do a lot of what i've done or make it through is because people have had my back or when I'm on tour, or I'm in some city, they 
give me a place to stay or have looked out for me, show me their city, drove me around, take me to places. So, you know, I try to do that as much as I can. You know, it'd be hard sometimes too. <laughs> but whenever somebody's in my city or, you know, I do my best to show that same love. Yeah. But yeah, I, it, it, it's dope out here. And the work is fulfilling in that way, especially when I see the students respond to it. And in, in the last few groups I had, the kindergartners were like incredible. And some of them wouldn't want me to leave, you know, or I would leave one class and, you know, one student started crying, falling on the floor crying, no, oh, I want to go to his next class. <laughs> and that kind of stuff would charge me up. Cause sometimes I'm sure you've had the experience where you go and, Sometimes you might feel a little unappreciated when you're like, damn, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm here, I'm trying to put in this time and, mm -hmm. you know, they're misbehaving or they're doing some other stuff. And you're like, man, I could have been doing something else right yeah. now. Yeah. When they appreciate it, it makes me feel appreciated, which I think makes my teaching even better or make my sessions better. Yeah. On a developmental level, how do you feel it has been uh, helping the youth? How do you feel it's been helping them? develop in different ways I'm, i've seen clips of you having different words on the board and different vocabulary words and you got the kids on different counts saying the words in different orders have you what have you been seeing and, and have you gotten any feedback from teachers from from the faculty from principals yeah the the folks out here have really loved it like they're so open to it you know the students are sharing things that they don't even share in their class i had a student in one of my sessions, we were writing a song about animals, saving the animals. That's what they wanted to make a song about. And one of the students wanted to speak about his cat dying, you know. So, you know, we spoke about that, which one of the parents told me, technically, we don't know if he died, he <laughs> ran away. <laughs> oh, but, man, you know. got a response record already. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Um, that was happening. And then that inspired another kid to talk about his dad passing away. Mm -hmm. But the thing, or I want to say he died, but came back to life. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm like, he died and came back to life. I, I, you know, I'm talking to a five-year-old and trying to understand this. And then one of the teachers told me that his, his father actually died and came back to life. Wow. I was like, what? So, you know, they're trying to make sense of these things at an early age, you know. And then another student right after that on that same song wanted to talk about his grandfather passing. He said, my grand, my pop-pop, they call their grandfathers out here pop-pop. So, like, my pop-pop passed away. So, you know, then we incorporate that into the song, you know. And I feel like for me, it creates a space for them to share the same way I was healing as a kid, watching my grandfather pass away before my eyes and stuff like as a child, they're, they're usually the outlets to express these kind of things either can be limited or if they are, it may not feel complimentary to the soul. You know, you may not resonate with it. Hip hop or at least the beats we choose or the kind of environment I try to set up, it creates a lane to where they have freedom to do that. And it's not, they're not being judged, you know, um, whatever they're going through and hopefully can receive some healing in some way. But I try to make it fun too, you know, like serious things come out. I got kids talking about shootings they've seen, witnessed, 
people they know that have gotten locked up or killed. They're young kids and they're bringing this up on their own. I'm not saying, hey, tell me your worst story. You know, this is what they're dealing with. You know, and a lot of times people like, oh, these kids don't know nothing. They're just kids. And, Mm, you know, that's what every generation is told, yet they're forced to be adults before they're ready. You know, Mm -hmm. it's based, they have to see and experience. So just want to be a part of, you know, these young people having a voice of having their own cathartic experience. And now I do get messages from people that I worked with years ago. They hit me up and telling me I have one student in from Far Rock Far Rockway, Queens. I used to go out there early in the morning. I have to get up at four in the morning to get out there because it takes so long to get out to Far Rockway. And I would stay trying to drop gems on him. Like, you know, because he would listen. He would stay after class. And I just kept trying to drop gems on him. And years later, he hit me up. He was like, man, you know, now I'm out in the world and I'm seeing these things you were talking about. And, you know, I feel like we probably wasted a lot of your time. And I'm so sorry. A lot of the things you were trying to tell us, we would just, you know, whatever. We don't, you know, not fully getting it. He's like, man, I see it. I see it in my everyday life now. Specific things you warned me about. So, those things are meaning are helpful because, some, like you said, we don't know how we impact people. We don't know what someone takes from a conversation or from a moment. But in some other moment you're not present for, they can hopefully make a better decision or remember something you said to be like, okay, I'm going to do this. And hopefully it could save somebody's life or yeah. at least point it in the right direction. Definitely. Yeah, those moments of knowing that you impacted someone is is amazing and then you like you say you were planting seeds and that's what they are they're seeds like we don't see them grow and then they grow and then all we see is the trees later on and i'm sure you planted several 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 trees and likewise and we continue to want to plant more and more yeah yeah i I used to think of that specifically when i would go places and stuff i'm planting seeds yeah i'm going you know they may not all grow yeah but you know if i can get as many as i can out there and hopefully create a new forest you know like some Mm -hmm. something that can you know be beautiful that would be dope definitely in in 2023 i think um more times out of necessity but also i think it's just the norm that Everyone today is multidisciplinary. You know, you're, you're behind the mic, you're on the mic, you're on this, you're doing lighting. But you engaged in that at a time where not too many people were, were doing that. How did you initially, you know, you're doing all this stuff, emceeing, you're, you're taking your, your writing, your craft into so many different worlds. What now led you behind the camera? Um, <clears throat> Man, it was a good question, right? <laughs> <laughs> Almost choked. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> thinking back, there are a number of things that make me remember why or how I started getting behind the lens. If I travel back and as I'm thinking, I remember, you know, those old cameras with the little little wind-up thing you get the, from the, like the, cvs the polaroid the, yeah, the cvs oh, yeah yeah so you know those back from even those like disposable cameras used to take a bunch of pictures on there like 
in school. Like mm-hmm. I have pictures from like middle school or high school where I was, you know, taking pictures of like, you know, my friends or, you know, whatever yeah, we were yeah. doing. And I kind of would try to focus on the angle a bit or try to censor things or when I would take family pictures, you know, try to look at everything around. I, I felt like I developed over years, like a view of angles and frames to where I knew how I like things to look. And eventually I had gotten a cam- video camera actually in high school. I had a video camera. So, you know, ciphers or, you know, being in the car driving around and listening to instrumentals and freestyling. I have tons of footage of just things that still, I got to get online one day, yeah. but just a lot of, you know, different moments from that time period of, just archiving. Didn't know what I was doing with this. I was just recording. Yeah, there was nowhere to post it back then. There was no. Yeah, yeah. There was no, there was no YouTube. <laughs> you know, like I'm telling you, I know for fact. Like if there was Instagram in high school or certain things, it would have been, been a rap. Viral. It would have been, been a rap. Yeah, back then it would have oh, been a rap. It would have been a rap back then because it would have been a rap. That was a time of like people that were creative were creative because they really wanted it because there was no. There was no social media. So if you said you rapped, you probably really did it because there was no front to do it for an audience that didn't, that wasn't there. So it was just a different time. So when you talk about the time of recording and, and um, just recording on nonstop everything from birthday parties to walking down the block to get yeah. juice to anything, just recording yeah. it, putting it in the tape. And yeah. I got, I got old audio cassettes of uh, me and my friend who used to live right next door we would sit and it's it was almost like a podcast this was like we were kids and we were like making up a show i forgot i gotta listen to them because i have a bunch of cassette tapes where we made our own shows and we're just talking about news and media and movies and comedians and stuff and reenacting stuff and we would laugh like it was like we would just talk about things and have each other rolling and we were just recording. I have, have not heard them since then, like yeah. since the recording, <laughs> I haven't even listened to it. And one day I know when I sit down and listen to these tapes, it's going to be. Bananas. Yeah. 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 How ridiculous. But even as early as then, and I might've been 11 or 10 or, you know, around that time, just recording on cassette tapes, that stuff. And then, after I had graduated from college, which I did a music degree and then psychology as well and then audio arts, engineering and stuff. After I came out, I interned with the Hip Hop Theater Festival and there I did a podcast. This was 2008. I did a podcast and I was interviewing like people like Mark Bamuthi Joseph, who's incredible, incredible artist, uh, different people like Danny Hawk and all these different people in hip hop theater. I was interviewing them. And, you know, making audio podcasts. I didn't know no podcast like that, like not like today at all. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we did that and we just have like an image or like a quick little intro thing. And I remember having a conversation with someone, uh, a dancer that was introduced to me by a friend, Cecilia Marta. Her, you know, Cecilia? Maybe, maybe. If I see the picture, she does, she does like modern or like contemporary style, but like real beautiful ancestral work too. It's really dope. But she introduced me to uh, Raymond, uh, Raymond del Barrio, and 
I remember we were walking one time and I was in a church. We walked into some like church, I forgot why, and had a whole conversation about religion, like really deep conversation. And then we walked out and he was like, man, that was a deep conversation. Like you went in right there. You, man, you should have recorded that. And I was like, hmm. no, but I mean like, you should, you should have had, we should have had a camera and captured that whole thing. Like everything you said, and I was like, oh, wow, wow, that's cool. Thank you. That's what's up. And he was like, no, I mean, like, you should go online and buy a camera and start recording these conversations that you have. And I was like, damn, you really going hard. And he was like, man, I'm I'm so serious. Like, And I think uh, we end up meeting again after that. And he was like, let's look it up right now. So I'm like, he got me to look up the camera. And I went and I bought it. And it was a Canon, like my first Canon camera. And... That was like the beginning, because I had had an experience with cameras, like I said, younger, but then that was when like somebody's just telling me like, yo, you need to be recording everything, every show, every interview, everything. And I was like, okay. And that became also another key because there are places I've got into with a camera that I couldn't get into as an artist. Like I wasn't expecting to be like, let's say sometimes someone don't know who you are, right? You're an artist. They just never met you. They don't know who you are. But you have a camera. Yeah, especially back then. Yeah. There are times with like, I've gotten into sold out events because I had a camera. They were like, oh, like, oh it's sold out. Sorry, I don't know. But I have a camera. I was supposed to here to record. I'm here to do this thing. Da -da -da. All right. They people wanted media on stuff, so it kind of helped, you know. Even the thing in the Brooklyn Hip Hop Festival when Jay Z was on stage and yep. stuff. I performed like uh, that, I think. Yeah, somebody gave me. Uh, I had given somebody a necklace, and then they went and got me a, a, a band. Band and got me on stage. It was like ten of those things, and I'm on stage with Jay Z and. J. Cole and everybody, J. Electronica, and I have my camera and I'm filming everything. And I got stupid footage, just stupid footage. Close up, like right there, crispy, clean, lighting, excellent, colors on point. And the more and more that happened, I kept being like, man, I got to get better lens. I got to get better lighting. I got to get this. Like I did a show, I went to a show. And another situation like that, Nas was performing and I was at the event with these painters, artists there, but the room where the performance was, we couldn't get in. And I was like, damn. And I'm just talking to someone, uh, rest in peace, uh, Kimberly Andino, that's her name. I was talking with her and, you know, she, she just listened to me. I'm talking about how I met Nas when I was 17. I was, you know, working at uh, BMG Bertelsmann Music Group in Manhattan, 2003, and the day New York City lost electricity in August, Blackout. like you know, the blackout. We had to leave and walk. I had to walk from Manhattan to the South Bronx to Millbrook Projects. From that whole journey, make that walk, and. On the path early on, like 27th Street or 23rd Street, something like that, I bumped into Nas and Khalees. And, you know, I met them and I had the shirt of the Neptunes album, B 
before it came out and they were both on the Neptunes album, uh, you know, the Neptunes presents the clones album. And they were like, yo, how you got that? And they were just tripping off the fact that I had the CD before it came out. I had everything before it came out. It was because working at the uh, distribution company. And I was telling this story to Kimberly and Dino. And she was like, what? Oh my God. So you got to get in there. Like, this event is for you. You got to get in there. I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. She was like, hold on. She walked away, cut the bracelet off of somebody's wrist, which was a VIP bracelet, put it on my wrist and said, you need to go, you need to get in there. I'm like, oh my God. And I get in there and I have my camera and I'm there and I'm like, you know, I don't want to film from the audience. I want to film on stage. And I remember just being like, you know, I'm just going to go on stage and start filming. And, you know, wild thing is I didn't even ask for permission. I just went up there and started filming and um, I got incredible footage. And I remember I was able to stay there because I was filming, you know, and I got incredible, incredible footage that, again, that's something that I also the hoarding of footage is disgusting. But yeah, I'm, I'm guilty I, of it, too. I'm trust. Yeah, like I have <laughs> like things I got to post and stuff like that, but the camera allowed me to be in certain spaces or just because I happened to have it, people invited me to certain spaces, you know, and it was more advantageous for other artists too, you know, to do music videos for them. I did a music video for Sa Rock, you know, she uh, her music video seven. And, you know, I was in Minneapolis and her and Soul Messiah were there and they invited me to the Rhyme Sayers Festival that they do. And it was humongous. I met everybody and their mother out there. Everybody. I met Brother Ali. I met uh, Anderson Park. I met so many people. It was stupid. Yeah. And because I had a camera, they were like, yo, come film the video for us. And you'll be wherever we be. And they're VIP. So I'm going wherever they go. And they were like, yo, just film this for us. And I changed my flight just to stay. Because I was like, yo, this is going to be fun. I'm going to have mad fun. And I did. And it was incredible. And all the footage in that video is the stuff that I shot. So Sarak is an amazing artist. Soul Messiah is an incredible producer and DJ. To be around them and build more was fun. But also I got the experience to, you know, be a part of something special. But then also just be in the cut of like, Greatness. you know, talking with Molly Mall and mm. all these people. It just, it just was nonstop. It was yeah. like so many people. I, I have like 20 names of like big name, uh, Common. I'm like walking into some, I almost got hit by a equipment speeding by and Common pulled me out the way, nearly saved my life. I felt, I was like, hey, hey, what's going on? It would be moments like that. And some people wouldn't know who I was. They might've seen me somewhere before. Like I remember Marley Maul looking at me like, I've seen you before. And it was cause I was at NYU at an event. So sometimes what people know me for isn't even me being an artist sometimes. And then sometimes that's the surprise too. Mm -hmm. Like when people like, oh man, you're just cool. You're in the place. Who are you? What you be doing? What's going on? And then, you know, I'll still be like kind of quiet about certain things. I don't just be like throwing it all out there. But then when certain people find it, it's more like something special. Like, oh wow, I didn't, I just heard your songs for the first time or something. So I would like to be no more as an artist. And in many cases I am. But the camera also is like something that I love. And I think also was initially a means to like save money because when you pay, you got to pay a filmmaker 
to film you and then pay someone to edit. And then when you edit, like me, I'm perfectionist, obsessive. So uh, can you change the font a little bit? Can you, oh, I'm sorry. Can you move that to the left? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know what I'm talking about? And, 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 you know, people make you feel like, oh my God, please, Uh I'm doing the video for you. What more you want from me? You're on the 27th draft. (laughs) So I was like, you know what? Let me sit by myself and obsess over it and make it exactly the way I want it. And I'm not bothering nobody. I'm not, you know, wasting people's time or making people feel like, oh my God. So that was also a thing too. I started doing music videos for myself. It's just people like the way I did my videos, but they were like, can you do it for me too? So, you know, and I think like the editing is, is something that's special, like how you tell the story, how you put the images together. There are a lot of videos I did where I didn't put fancy cinematography. Like I just, I chopped it and then the next image and then I chop it and they're like some like no real transitions or nothing. It's just good storytelling. Yeah. Straight, clean storytelling footage back to back. Now I got more stuff where I try to throw down more on the effects and things like that. You gonna go but Michael Bay on them? Are you gonna go Michael Bay on them one day? I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm for me. I'm like, um, I'm like, you know, Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite directors, if not probably yeah. my favorite. Yeah, like uh, very intentional. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, I, I wanna like if I can get into animation. That's something I really want to do, you know, create more animated visuals. But Stanley Kubrick is like a style that like I love, you know, in terms of like the intentionality mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. every visual, but then everything in the visual, you know, like whatever's there, something on the wall, something on the side, you know, the the words in the paper that the person's holding, mm-hmm. all that stuff. I love that. I love the 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 nuggets you find when you review and watch something more than once. You're like, oh, I missed that. Like, you know, what do they call it? Uh, not nugget. They call it um, Easter eggs now. Easter eggs. Uh, Easter eggs. Yeah. yeah. Like I love, I love leaving those, you know, in, in certain spaces in, in a video. So I do stuff like that. Nice. But I love, like documentary style storytelling, you know. Nice. So definitely be on the lookout for that. If you're watching Itikana's videos, look for those Easter eggs. They're in there. Yeah, yeah, definitely there. Hip-hop is celebrating its 50th anniversary. And um, it's been very celebratory. It's been very reflective for the culture. Um, A lot of amazing programming is taking place throughout the city. But also there's a lot of conflict. Um, A lot of people speak about how there's still a lack of ownership in hip-hop. How there's still a lack of, even though it's Hispanic and Black, um, not the best representation all the time. Um, not the best compensation all the time for our work. Where do you uh, lie in this 50th hip hop celebration? What are your feelings? What are your thoughts, your sentiments? Man, the 50th anniversary is, is a big deal. And there are so many things being said. Some of it's like real disheartening because, you know, I look at who's saying stuff. Because some of the most hurtful stuff are people that are not from, like, the culture for real, for real. So, you know, I hold that with a grain of salt. But, you know, one of the topics that's come up is, like, when you say ownership of, like, hip-hop. Like, you know, who created hip-hop, you know? And there was, like, an interview I saw 
where it was being said that, you know, Puerto Ricans contributed nothing to hip hop and, you know, uh, they're, you know, it's a black culture and Puerto Ricans came later and whenever they did do anything, it wasn't as impactful as other artists or whatever. And it was like, you can't point to any Puerto Ricans that did anything that other people followed. And it just get like, it started getting real divisive, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's almost like, like imagine you do something with someone, y'all create something together and y'all don't expect it to blow up and it blows up. And then when it blows up, people start being like, well, you ain't really do as much because like I did more like, you know, and like, and yes, without a doubt, you know, black culture, uh, you know, the word African, you know, there's like complications with that word Africanus and all that stuff. But, um, you know, the original motherland, ancestral, native, indigenous cultures from the land today called Africa, you know, is essential. Hip hop ain't happening without that. Um, I also feel and have like done my studies and stuff where I I feel the Afro-Caribbean culture has been super impactful in hip hop, you know, to where, you know, a lot of the rhythms and flows and styles and things have come and flown through, you know, be it from different time periods, not just, you know, like you have the beginning, but, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, all through today, where every decade you have different people doing very inspirational things. And sometimes people don't know who's who culturally. There's a lot of artists who won't claim that they're Dominican or Puerto Rican because they don't want the stereotypes that come with that. And people see them just like, oh, they're just black. You know, like if you seen Ruby D, Ruby D, people thought he was just black. Like, no, he was Puerto Rican, Puerto but Rican, yeah, as Afro Boricua, like mm-hmm. you know, we're we're a mixed people. You know, so as colonization happened, our blood going in all these different directions, it's also natural for the cultures to mix too, and to start like cutting people out who were there from the beginning of what we know the birth to be. I feel like that's disrespectful because you know there. Are, prerequisites to like when you say all right if there's a birth that means there's an incubation period right so that means like nine months of pregnancy metaphorically right so where was hip-hop pregnant at right and then when was conception you know Mm -hmm. and then what happened before conception what you know there's so many layers and Mm -hmm. things to look at that we can go back thousands of years you know as to like you know there was a conversation with Tariq Nasheed which he was talking about um you know, uh, Pygmy Martin, you know, where he was like rapping on the track and stuff like that. And they're, you know, the Nicholas brothers, which have been, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, cited as like inspirations in B-boy and B-girl and Mm -hmm. breakdancing. And in that, you know, there are truths. And also there were different points, I believe, in which the inspiration was coming from. Like if we're talking about like ciphers and culture and, and music, that was a big part of Taino culture. If you looked at Anacaona in, in Haiti and Kiskeya, you know, she was known for being a poet and she was doing poetry on beats. You know, everybody was banging beats in a circle and a drum and dancing, you know, and our Taino word for barbecue is barbacoa. You know, barbecues come from Taino culture. What is that? Music playing, people being creative, dancing and eating food together. Yep. Like that's, cultural so when new york city is in rumba and boogaloo and uh doo and you know uh 
you have the bomba, the plena, you have, uh, you know, uh, mambo, you have these uh, salsa, all these different styles of like black and brown culture, even intertwining because you have Afro-Cuban rhythms, you know, um, even when you look at like La Fania All-Stars, mm -hmm. you know, like yeah. they were the mixed. Mix. Yeah. Yeah. Like it wasn't just like light skin. It wasn't just dark skin. It was a plethora, a di the diaspora. It was the diaspora. So, and that is the context when hip hop is being created, these musics, this, these uh, styles of music were being played. Disco was also there, yes. Um, but people were definitely trying to slide away from disco, you know. Uh, but that was something that was happening. So there are a lot of, I think, different influences. And then who you speak to depends, like, what they were influenced by, right, and what time periods. And some people don't even fully tell you their full inspirations because they don't want you to know exactly where they got it from. There's all kinds of things, you know. If we look at, uh, I mean... The um, Sugar Hill Gang, even though they obviously robbed, right, Grandmaster Kaz of his lyrics and stuff like that and stole lyrics and stuff. Like the first music video, you know, you see um, they're wearing native feathers, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. They're talking about chiefs and powwows mm -hmm. and all these different things that were native culture. You know, they had Tito Puente on the album, you know, doing the, the drums, the timbales and, you know... Um, you look at a Buster Rhymes music video, put your hands where my eyes can see, you know, you're talking about Afro-Indigenous culture, and that's one of the most beautiful music videos ever made in hip-hop. And, you know, his Caribbean culture, he brings into the music, and obviously that's in the 80s that comes later, but it's all, I mean, 90s, but it all, you know, it's context, you know, as to, like, the levels and layers into which you go from having native Indigenous culture, you have colonization, you have uh, all kinds of crimes against humanity, people separated, dispersed, displaced, moving, migrating through Africa, through Caribbean, through South America, through here to the mainland, you know, down south, you know, Carolinas and coming up north. And, uh, you know, it's all like in the Bronx, you know, if it was like a, uh, if it was a bunch of rivers, you know, it all came and then shoosh, just kind of came together there. And I think all those influences are beautiful and important. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wouldn't, I couldn't say which one's more important, you know, like, they're all important. Um, but I think it could be the conversation surrounding around, like, money, where people want, like, more financial restitution, you know, to where they're like, no, no, you know what I'm saying? It's like this because we try to get paid. I don't know. Yeah. Like, Cause I wasn't, I wasn't hearing these conversations for a long time. This Me is too. like brand new. And this sounds more of like a corporate mm -hmm. kind of style conversation, as opposed to like when I grew up and what I've experienced being in the birthplace and being in New York city. And I'm sure you've experienced being in the culture and moving around and going from event to event and being a part of different communities. You see it's, it's love. Like that's the intention of it. It's yeah. bringing people together in a place where in the Bronx, it was a colonized environment. Like people are coming, staying in their own racial groups. And then, you know, people are fighting and shooting and killing each other because of misunderstandings and their own conditionings to like hip hop be a solution oriented way to bring people together, the ghetto brothers, you know, creating an environment where peace could be had, yeah. where parties could take place. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? 
um, sacrifices that were made, that brother Black Benji who was killed, you know, and, and the Puerto Ricans saying, nah, we're not going to go, uh, we're not going to reta- retaliate. We're going to use this as a means to try to create peace. You know, that sets the stage for hip hop. I don't know how we can keep, I don't know how we were going to be having parties at that time if something of that magnitude didn't happen, exactly. of that massive peace treaty, mm-hmm. the way native tribes would do, you know? So I think when we look at the influences and and where it comes from, it comes from the heartbeat. You know, the heartbeat is the first beat we hear. All humans experience that. But I guess the interpretation of those rhythms artistically have been most notably made of melanated beings, melanated peoples, you know? And, you know, they come from lands that, you know, we give names to and stuff. Uh, but, you know, it can get really intricate. Yeah. And my goal is to not be divisive. My goal is to try to bring people together with the very intention hip hop was created for. You know, if if people feel that Puerto Ricans didn't contribute anything or feel like we're unimportant or, you know, all the different names throughout the decades who've made hip hop what we understand it to be today. Like, yes, there were certain things happening at certain times, but people didn't know that like hip hop for that, or people didn't even know those influences. Yes, they could be the first foundation. Like, you know, sometimes you could be the first to do something, but it's not until the third or fourth person kind of does it to where it becomes, they got it from that, but they also added their own flavor and style to it, which is what made it what it became, you know? And they were also, um, young Boricuas who were killed, you know, B-boys and, and artists who never got to live their life. So they never even got to fully put out their potential or what they could have been, how instrumental they could have been to the culture. You know, our graffiti artists, style writers who got locked up and mm-hmm. they were nice, but they got locked up. You know, DJs, DJ Disco Wiz, he dealt with a lot of like legal mm-hmm. stuff to, that took him out the scene. You know, people dealing with real life stuff that it was like, Hmm, do I choose to do this or do I do that? Cool hurt getting stabbed. Like these were the streets was the Bronx was still what it was. Yeah. I think the thing to celebrate is how an oppressed people sought to liberate themselves through art and through culture, you know, and did what no government was able to do, no governing body was able to do, not the police, not nobody. Yeah. The streets did that, you know. So Totally revolutionary on all levels and fronts. Yeah, totally revolutionary. And that can only happen if we do that together. Like that, you know, even the people in the audience, you know what I'm saying? Like they were dancing and vibing and creating a movement. Maybe their names are not known and their faces are not known. You're going to say they're unimportant. You're going to say that the women behind the scenes who were there, who were doing stuff because they were like maybe making the food or organizing the event or promoting or setting up the stage or setting up things. They weren't important Mm -hmm. because they're not famous or you don't know them like that. I just feel like that gets real status based and real like, you know, I'm going to determine who's important and who contributed. You ain't a part of the culture. And if you ain't really a pioneer, if you ain't really do it like that, I mean, I don't know. I, I hear these voices and it, and when you take pride in what you do, it can hurt because then it's like there are people who don't know the knowledge, who weren't there, who didn't experience these things, who are taking this as fact. Mm-hmm. 
And now more and more people are like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? They're trying to colonize music or trying to yeah. all these like whack conversations that I see that are disheartening. So sometimes I even wonder, there's something I want to reference, but I don't even want to bring it up. But, you know, uh, like that thing is like, you know, do when, when you label something hip hop is like, damn, did I am I just growing now so far out into other directions that I don't know, where's my where's my base or where's my home? You know, hip hop has always been my home. Yeah. But from what people understand the hip hop, sometimes I don't even say hip hop because I just don't want to be misunderstood. Exactly. Even, you know, even though I know what I'm doing this yeah. for and I know where my heart's at, I know my track record, what I've been doing. I simplify it as music at times mm-hmm. or just art, you know, creativity, but it's all in that vein, you know? Very well said. It's, um, it, it, it's it's because you have your you, you have our understand we have our understanding our principles our grassroots way of doing hip-hop and then you have a mainstream representation of it and you're kind of in the parallel with that battling against it while doing your own thing while even sometimes taking some of the characteristics of that in your stuff so it's it's a constant journey and 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 how you're being represented how you're representing yourself how you're being perceived it can be very, very complex um, as an artist. So thank you for sharing all that. Lastly here, I would like to ask you, when you hear the 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 phrase, all power to the developing, what comes to mind for you? Hmm. All power to developing. Well, I think, I think of people growing I think of people building. I think, obviously, we we always give all power to the people, but in the developing of what we want, because developing is like a present word, right? Like the ing makes it still present. Um, all power to the developing. So I would feel, you know, people who are developing now, who are building now, um, and growing, and I think. As artists, we should always be developing, you know, not just I've arrived, I've developed, I'm done. You know, we're still developing and we're still learning from each other. Um, I think of the process, I think of the process. So, you know, sometimes we want to be at the final stage. We want the final image of what we want our life to look like and things to be. And I think of loving the journey. I think of appreciating and valuing that you may not have fully developed, but you're developing. Enjoy the development. You know, don't get stuck in feeling, I got to make it look like this and it's got to be like this. And if it's not like that, I'm not there. Um, That's how I hear the phrase in my head. Um, You know, and when I think of artists developing, you know, artists in development, right? Uh, artists repertoire. Uh, I would imagine all power to the people who are still learning, who are still growing, who are developing. And I like that concept. I feel like, you know, even the word power is uh, is a word that you know, it's to be understood in so many ways, like what we do with power, 
you know, like how we handle it, how we distribute it, how we stay righteous or in our moral frame, whatever it is, our core beliefs, when we have power and what we do when we feel powerless, you know, yeah. you know, I think of um, the need to amplify the voices of people who are trying to get it, trying to be there, but are not there yet, but they could be, you know. A lot of times today we can't see people unless they're already successful, if they're already, you know, their results are there. And by then it's already too late to really connect with folks. Whereas like you see their potential, you know, you see their present rookie card. There's yeah. their, their there's their rookie card right here. Can you rock with someone who's in that stage and want to see them grow to where they may even transcend what you might have thought they could have ever been, you know? We always try to put our perceived potential on people and sometimes you just never know you know and you know um something you said uh, even before the question when you were saying um you know how you can get judged when you're doing your work and stuff i felt that a lot too you know in certain spaces where i say someone might not like you for something you don't even know about it could be the way they're looking at you judging maybe uh people's ethnicity nationality or skin color or you know other things where let's say i think most important for real for real, i mean black is beautiful and black is paramount um i also feel like character is important too because sometimes people who look exactly the same could hurt you you know whereas like someone who you might not expect it really got your back may really have your back um, so color is important because we're not colorblind. Um, that's for sure. Um, and it's important to honor, I think, like, you know, darker the berry, you know what I mean? That's, that's, I feel like that's where we come from. You know, when you get back to the origin, the source, you know, the oldest human being we could find was a black woman, you know, so she gave birth to all the civilization, you know, we all come from that. And within that, we have all different layers and types, you know, and, you know, when people judge people solely based off of what they see, when the body is empowered by something intangible, a soul force, and we're not able to assess someone's character, you know, that's where we start, like, seeing things we don't, we even keep ourselves from being able to see the unseen. You know what I'm saying? Where we limit what we think about someone based off solely what we see. Yeah. You know, when we do that, that's especially in hip hop. You love to see someone who like, man, you didn't think he was that nice. And then he said, oh, my God, you wasn't you didn't see it coming. And some people you're like, oh, this person's going to be nice. And you're like, hmm. yeah. you know, so the perception, like, the perception is deception. That's how it always is. Um. Thank you so much for rocking with me today on All Power to Developing Intikana. Um, brought so much value to the conversation today. Your work is absolutely amazing. I mean, we got to like the tip of the iceberg of almost some of the stuff you've been doing. Where can people learn more about you? What can people put into the search bar if they want to see you, see your music videos, your films? Where can people look you up? Uh, people can go to my Instagram at Intikana, I-N-T-I-K-A-N-A. 
You can also go to my YouTube. Please subscribe to Intikana TV, I-N-T-I-K-A-N-A TV, and Intikana.net, which is my website. And I'm pretty much on all social media platforms, and it should be at Intikana or at Intikana TV. It's usually one of the two, but usually more often than not, Intikana. So Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, all that on every platform just like all power to developing you search exactly. all power to developing you can find this on most major platforms i would like to thank everyone for being a listener to, on this episode of all power to the developing if you like what you're listening to write a comment subscribe like follow us on facebook follow us on our instagram at eastsideinstitute.org also we have performing the world right around the corner taking place from thursday september 28th to Sunday, October 1st. Get your early bird tickets. We have a lot of great presenters this year, and we're very excited for performing the world. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been another great episode of All Power to the Developing, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.